0: Hello, I'm Chris Marshall and welcome to Politically Speaking from Holyrood magazine. On this edition of the podcast we hear from Scottish Labour's Richard Leonard on why he stood down as leader, his party's ongoing constitutional dilemma and his current role as convener of the Scottish Parliament's Audit Committee. But first I'm joined by my colleagues Andrew Learmonth and Louise Wilson to discuss another busy week in politics. And Andrew, it's been a, a tough few days for the Prime Minister.
1: It really has. I mean, probably his toughest days in office so far. So we're speaking on Wednesday the morning, Wednesday the, the morning of Wednesday the 15th. Um, uh, and last night he suffered a, a major rebellion over plans to bring in vaccine passports in England. Uh, so I, I think it's 99 of his MPs rebelled. Though There seems to be some maybe doubt about that figure that maybe a couple of people weren't counted. So it could actually be 101 MPs rebelled, his own MPs rebelled. Uh, There was uh, quite a few abstentions uh, as well. So so actually, it's the second biggest defeat for a sitting Tory Prime Minister since uh, Theresa May's first meaningful vote back in the, the heady days of the the, the Brexit votes, um, so it's 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 quite it's, it's bad for two reasons um, for for Boris Johnson. Actually, it's possibly bad for 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 all <laughs> for one reason. In that, if he ever wants to try and bring in any other COVID measures or stricter COVID measures, you know uh, that need to be approved by Parliament. There's every chance that he he now doesn't have the authority to do that. That his MPs will sit in the hands and and and, and not support those measures. So which is, you know, uh, would obviously have a knock on effect in, in, on what happens up here as well. Uh, but it's bad for him particularly because it kind of shows that, you know, he's he's losing the confidence of his own party. Now, there's only, I think at the moment, one MP who's who publicly calling them to go. And it's, it's one of the, I can't quite remember his name, but it's one of those uh, uh, dinosaurs of the party, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> But he's already he's already been wounded. He's been wounded by a couple of things. He's wounded by the uh, the scandal over Owen Patterson, who, if you remember, was the, the the Tory MP who was who was sort of caught lobbying, and he sort of you know, defended him and, and tried to uh, have a suspension, or did in fact have a suspension um, um overruled, um, which you know has no. Uh, Caused a fury, outrage, and has uh, now led to, to to Owen Patterson standing down, and there's now a by election in one of the safest Tory seats, which happens tomorrow night, and it, at the moment it looks like it could be a Lib Dem win, um, which is, is 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 you know staggering, really. Uh, uh, but he's also been damaged by Christmas parties. Uh, the the, the partygate uh, scandal, which is coming out, um, seems to be a new party seems to be revealed <laughs> every day, uh, all by all by Pippa Carrera from the, the Daily Mirror, um, uh, uh, and what he knew uh, and uh, about these parties that were happening uh, in his in, in Downing Street number ten and, and you know the toy central office, um, and just the way that that seems to be handled, and he's sort of you know denied and denied and denied, but those denials have come a little bit sort of uh uh less uh watertight as the uh, as as more information has come out which i think you know to there was the, the the downing street pub quiz which i think was on the 15th of december last year and uh, he was actually asking the, the the questions there you know um um and, you know, we, we now know that uh, the people at the Downing Street pub, because everyone taking part was told to leave by the back door from Downing Street, you know, <laughs> don't be seen by the cameras. We also know some of the team names. Uh, some of them are quite good, I thought. Uh, there was uh, hands Face First Place, which is uh, probably one of my favourites, you know. <laughs> no team name is better than a, a bad team name. Uh, so, yeah, and, and Better Together. So the we Scottish thing there, one of the teams was called Better Together, which is uh, interesting. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. It, it does, you know, that... Boris Johnson is still, I, I don't know how popular he is with the, the grassroots, but he was, you know, he was overwhelmingly the most popular choice of when it came to the Tory leadership contest just a, a couple of years back. He's, you know, there's a lot of people in the Commons who owe their seats to, to his popularity with voters. So, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I've no idea what's going to happen. Will he still be prime minister in a month, two months, three months, six months? Who knows? But I, I suppose this kind of leads us on to, to, to what Louise is going to talk about, you know, is will all of these scandals, will all of Boris Johnson's troubles kind of just sort of be pushed back the papers a bit, be pushed back to page four or five, because actually the biggest news over the next couple of weeks is going to be what's happening with the the Omicron.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I was going to ask you about that, Louise, um, you know, we heard in, in the months that have gone by, we've heard a lot about various controversies around Boris Johnson, and none of them seem to stick. And that was one of the things that political commentators would say. He had this remarkable kind of Teflon-like quality where uh, some of these things didn't didn't particularly seem to damage him. But the, the party gate stuff really does seem to have cut through when you look at some of the polling now.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um I, I... I think it was yesterday that I saw something that was comparing the approval ratings of prime ministers, um, going back to Blair. Um, and I thought it was interesting that like everyone started with a positive rating and then it like just, it just went down quite rapidly with the exception of Boris Johnson who started with a negative rating. Then it went up a bit. And now it's like the lowest that any prime minister has ever had. Um, and you know, it, it does come back to the Christmas thing because a lot of people are really, really angry about it. You know, you had Aunt and Deck a couple of weeks ago commenting <laughs> on it, um, which yeah, is, know, is know, just bizarre. You know,
0: when, uh, when Aunt and Deck are gunning for you, you're really, you're really in trouble.
2: <laughs> exactly. You know, people are, are, are angry because they had to ca- effectively cancel their Christmases last year. Loads of people spent Christmas alone. Loads of people haven't been able to go see loved ones and. And yet, all this stuff about Basis is now coming out. Is uh, well, yeah. There's undoubtedly cut through now, and we're seeing that with the approval rings.
0: But ironically, as uh, as Andrew alluded to, there um, we now have a, a, a deterioration in the in the COVID situation, which could abs- could actually ironically help the Prime Minister in that it could knock some of this stuff off off the front page. I mean, what? What is the latest with Omicron? Louise?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I suspect that he will remain deeply unpopular, but it will uh, it it will sort of get knocked back. The consequences of all this will be knocked back because of Omicron. Omicron. Um, so Omicron, where we are at the moment, a lot of it still remains unknown. We don't know exactly how many cases there are in the UK. We know it's growing. We know that it's growing quicker than any other variant, but it's it's difficult to get the precise numbers of that. We don't know exactly how severe it is. We don't know um, like what, how severe the illness is that it's causing and things like that. So everything's all a bit up in the air, but but certainly governments are worry, worried about it. We saw the, the vote for a lot of the uh, restrictions in England coming back in earlier this week but also in Scotland. We've seen some of that stepped up. So uh, Nicola Sturgeon made a statement yesterday um, that was basically telling everyone to you know st- pull back on some of your plans essentially to be able to save Christmas itself. So we're now being told to try and limit your your socialising to, to three household maximum at, at any one time. Um, that uh, is a the restrictions are a bit lighter over Christmas itself I think you're allowed bigger gatherings around on like Christmas Day itself just mm-hmm. to give people I guess a bit more of a, a, of a normal feel than than we had last year um, but importantly these are this is just advice they're not bringing in legal restrictions for any of that sort of thing and, and that again goes back to the UK government not not putting in the same restrictions because it as ever it always comes down to budgets
0: yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, focus on Christmas Day itself, Andrew, for for obvious reasons, particularly after what what happened last year. But I mean, do you do you think we should anticipate further restrictions um, in the run up to Christmas? I, I I don't I don't think so. I so mean, John
1: Swinney was on the radio this morning and he was asked this this very question, and he he basically said, hopefully this will be enough, but as louis says there's so many unknowns with with omicron that it's it's you know we just i mean uh, I, one of the, the, the uh, uh, things about the vote in the Commons last night was apparently there was a briefing for MPs beforehand from you know some of the government scientists and and you know apparently people were coming out of an ashen face just going oh my god this is going to be a- absolutely awful. Um, I, I think anecdotally we looked down in London just now it seems to be really out of control there. There's actually quite a lot of MPs who have now got coronavirus yeah. um, and and the last night's vote was because they're still doing things in the old fashioned way where they squeeze as many people into a small corridor. It looks like a milestone, might have been a bit of a super spreader event, so it's going to be lots of yeah, sure. uh, MPs with, with COVID. So I, I, don't know, I don't know, I don't know what if there will be more restrictions. I think the Scottish government are really uh, reluctant to do that. First of all, because they can't really afford to do that; they don't have the money to sort of you know tell pubs and hospitality businesses to, to close down or you know put your staff on furlough or anything like that. Um, and secondly, It's I suppose the interesting thing is 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 we'll. Will people comply? Um, will people, you know, who sacrificed a lot last Christmas, will they go? Well, do you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go and I, I'm going to have four people from different households uh, in my house, or go to the pub with lots of different people. I, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I spent Christmas by myself last year because I was very strictly obeying the rules um, all by myself. And yeah. uh, you had a great time. Yeah, it was good. I really enjoyed. it, Actually, <laughs> it was fine. I <laughs> just, you know, I, oh, Opened some presents in the morning by myself. Watched, you know, went for a walk, watched some TV, ate a box of yeah. Quality Street. Wasn't that bad? Wasn't that bad? Yeah,
0: nice, but, nice for a, a novelty, I suppose. But you yeah, want to yeah, on to every year. Um, well, yeah, I mean, would sorry. I maybe every? Well, you know, you know, <laughs> um, Louise, I mean, that's that is an important point, isn't it? Just about how you know sick and tired of these measures. Uh, you know, the public, the public at large, are and and how important do you think this? Some of the controversy around what what was going on in Downing Street last year how important will that be in, in, in determining you know how compliant people are do you think
2: um it's always difficult to say isn't it i mean I, to be honest i think most people are are still fairly compliant things might lax a bit here and there because it has been so long but for the most part i get the feeling that that people recognize you know this is a new variant and, and we're, we're having this explained to this like all to us fairly well i think the communication has continued to be pretty great um for for what's happening and and how we're dealing with it so you know there will always be some people that won't comply to any any new restrictions that come in but uh, i mean maybe they're the same people that have never complied to any of the the restrictions i don't know um but as far as you know the christmas parties last year they certainly have broken some public trust i dare say there will be some people turning around and saying well if if I, if you didn't follow them then then why should i but I, I think for the most part people are fairly sensible and and will be happy to follow follow restrictions
0: okay well fingers crossed uh, christmas isn't cancelled again this year uh thank you both and uh, merry christmas when it comes and uh, now our interview with richard leonard
2: Okay, um, so we're obviously talking just a bit there about how we're both from Yorkshire. The stereotype of a Yorkshire person is sort of working class, really sort of the earth. Um, obviously the miners' strikes come into it and trade unionism yeah. is known to be a big thing. In many ways, you're also the archetype of a Yorkshire person being involved in the trade union movement and stuff like that. I mean, how did you get involved with that in the first place?
3: Well, um, what, one of my first jobs Really, my first proper job was working for uh, a guy who was a member of the European Parliament called Alex Falconer, who's uh, no longer with us. But Alex became an MEP in 1984, so uh, again, at the time, the miners had just gone on strike. Um, his background was as a TNG shop steward in Rosyth Dockyard, and uh, he always um, took a view that his political role... Needed to be absolutely plugged into the trade union movement. And so I joined the Transport and General Workers Union, uh, got fairly active uh, locally with them, and then a job came up at the Scottish TUC. The guy that was doing the job before had been there in 20 years, so this was a really rare opportunity to apply for a job with the Scottish trade union movement as an economist. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be given the job, and I worked there for five years so uh, and at that time Campbell Christie was the general secretary uh, and um, he was uh, helping to lead the campaign for a Scottish parliament you know when he uh, uh, got that job he said one of his goals was to try to create the environment where the case for a Scottish parliament will be unanswerable and he was a key architect uh, in, in that so it was, a, it was a trade union involvement that was political, but also industrial. And so, it, you know, it, a lot of the work we did was uh, in responding uh, often to crises. And so this is the time I went to work there in 91. So by then we'd got through Thatcher, but we had John Major as the prime minister. And, you know, if, um, People talk about Margaret Thatcher's uh, record of decimation of industry. Absolutely correct. You know the factory where my dad worked in Yorkshire closed down, and he had to move away. My family had to move away to Suffolk, so it was very real for me. But uh, politically, um, although Margaret Thatcher brought in a, you know huge change, it was in the period from uh, uh, 1991 onwards, and kind of John Major's tenure as prime minister, that. Uh, there was a massive uh, programme of privatisation from the coal industry to the nuclear industry, from the railways uh, through to the docks and so on. So there was a, there was a real fervour around that time uh, about what the trade unions could do to resist it. And, and that was one of the things that really drove me to politics because it was an understanding that so much can be achieved industrially, but, po- but the political arena Is where you can make substantive and long term changes, whether it's the creation of a Scottish Parliament or making the case, uh, as I am now doing, for the return of the railways to public ownership.
2: Mm -hmm. So, what came first for you? Was it your involvement in Scottish Labour or was it the trade union movement? It
3: was Labour, really. I mean, but but so when I came to university, um, which was in 1980, um, when I came to university to Stirling, um, it was, uh, you know, just after Margaret Thatcher had been elected, there were massive cuts, um, I think a 30% cut in Stirling University's budget from the University Grants Committee. Uh, so we were out on demonstrations straight away um, against that. And then within weeks, uh, I was taking part in massive demonstrations against uh unemployment, you know, there was a big march and rally in Liverpool, I seem to remember, getting an overnight coach down to, so it was a mixture of industrial and political, but it was mainly th- through the Labour Party and through my um, allegiance to the politics of people like Tony Benn and, and that, that kind of uh, Miller of, uh, of thinkers and, and radicals that were around at that time. Um, so, my, so my direct involvement with the trade union movement came a little bit later on. But I always, you know, I always understood. Yeah, you know, my dad was in the Tailor and Garment Workers Union, and you know, I always understood um, the importance of the trade union movement. And uh, and I'm still very defensive about the trade unions' involvement in the Labour Party. Uh, you know, as the the founding, uh, um, uh, the foundation of the Labour Party uh, really comes from the trade unions and people like Keir Hardy and so on. So it's it's you know it's absolutely a key part of how I see the Labour Party sitting as part of a broader Labour movement and being internationalist as well.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, recently we've seen um, a couple of wins from the trade union movement with the the recent Scotrail strikes just before COP26. Um, There's also the um, Glasgow cleansing workers. Um, UCU are now going on strike for the next three days. I mean, are you you proud that, that all this action is still taking place?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I was on the UCU picket line just this morning, actually, at Glasgow University. So, um, and, and I think it's important to demonstrate, uh, you know, in practical ways uh, that uh, solidarity and support. Um, one of the things that um, uh, that I've now got a bit more time for as a backbencher is doing that work with the trade unions. And so, I'm you know I'm now. Um, the kind of convener of the RMT Scottish Parliamentary Group uh, which has got members of the Scottish Greens as well as Labour members of it. Um, I'm involved with the um, Professional Footballers Association um, and uh, I've been campaigning with uh, Unite and the UCU this morning for example so yeah I do think that trade union links important and I I want to spend the time that I've got in trying to be a voice uh, in the political arena for those trade unions to make sure that the, the case that they are pursuing is, uh, is heard loud and clear. I mean, I think w- w- people say to me, well, university lecturers are in a rather privileged position in society. But, you know, the reason that they're out on strike is one, because their pensions are being cut. Uh, uh, but secondly, because uh, a third of all university lecturers are on fixed term or other forms of precarious contracts. So the the kind of zero hours contract culture, this very kind of flexi labour market approach, um, uh, is, is something which affects everybody in all different parts of society, uh, and they are also on strike because uh, in real terms their pay has been cut by twenty percent over the last twelve years. So and and and, and so the nurses uh, were uh, con- NHS workers were contemplating taking industrial action earlier this year because. Uh, their pay has fallen back by fifteen percent over the last ten years, so this kind of real terms erosion in people 's living standards as well as the quality of life are very real and affect not just the public sector but the private sector as well and so i think it 's important that we make the case uh, and try and get across the argument that austerity and the and the kind of contraction uh, in uh, the, 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 the the pay and conditions of people in work uh, is often not an economic choice, it's a political choice and there are alternatives to the choice that's been taken.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you you were head of economics at, at the STUC, what do you make of the the current situation and, and efforts to to borrow a phrase, build back better?
3: Yeah, well I think, I mean many of us have, have come through the last eighteen months or so, um, and um, it's been you know it's been a very difficult period of time. Um, many of us have lost loved ones. I mean, I can think of quite a number of people who um, I've worked with in the trade union movement who have lost their lives prematurely to COVID, and so that's you know that's difficult. And I, and I suppose it just makes me um, more determined that we just don't go back to business as usual, and we don't go back to the way things were, and the you know, in their memory, if nothing else, we're and do things differently um, in the future. So, um, I, I mean, I think one of the things which has come out of the pandemic um, is, I think, uh, an understanding that the creation of a national care service, for example, is an idea whose time has come. Um, and I think that was um, really uh, determined by just the awful things that happened in uh, residential care homes during the, the, especially in the first couple of waves of the pandemic, where in my view, and I tried to make this argument um, in parliament and in public, in my view, the human rights of uh, elderly residents in care homes was denied. You know, they were refused access to medical care and treatment that they needed. and um, and you know, one of the things which I managed to achieve was that there will be a human rights dimension to the public inquiry that we're going to have, which will look at just what happened in our care homes. So I think those things, I think, are important in um, if we're going to build a compassionate society, which I think we need to do, if we're going to build a fairer society, if we're going to have homes for all, if we're going to provide useful work uh, for people, then these are... Uh, these are the different ways in which we need to organise things as we come out of the pandemic, which is why I think the STUC is absolutely right to proffer a different vision of a different kind of society that we can build on the back of of the experience that we've had, uh, both as individuals but also as, as a society.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, you personally have pushed for the National Care Service for, for quite a long time. Are you, are you hopeful? Are you
3: confident that,
2: that what is coming will be what you want?
3: Well, um, yes, will it be a National Care Service worthy of the name? Well, we, we are, we've been regularly told um, by the First Minister, by the former, former Cabinet Secretary for Health, by the current Cabinet Secretary for Health, that the National Care Service will be on an equal footing. I think that was the word in the Derek Feely review. The National Care Service will be on an equal footing with the National he- Health Service. Uh, and and I'd like to think that it will be, but the the model that's been put forward at the moment suggests a continuation of the procurement and commissioning model. So, um, um, and and do you know what? If anybody was to suggest the National Health Service were to be run along the lines of commissioning and procurement and the buying in uh, from uh, uh, companies located in tax havens to provide services in the National Health Service, There'd be riots on the streets, and I would probably be out there with them because it's just wrong. You know, we want—I want to see a national care service, which is democratically accountable, which is local and not centralised, which is the model that's being pursued, but which, frankly, takes out the profit motive and the shareholder dividend completely out of the system. So there will be a place, I think, uh, certainly in the uh, immediate future, for the third sector to provide on a not-for-profit basis those services but the idea that the biggest provider of residential care for the elderly is a company which is headquartered in the Channel Islands whose ultimate owner is based in the Cayman Islands and, and which is benefiting from over 80% of its income from public sector uh, inc- uh, payments. I just think it's wrong and I think most people think that's just morally wrong as well so this is a real once in a generation chance to do things differently the creation of a National Care Service is an idea whose time has come and I just think we need to get it right and I think we need to be bold and I think we need to be radical and we need to be prepared to take some risks and and uh, during the course of the the next few months uh, years even because I don't think the bill is going to be published until June of, of, of next year there is an opportunity for us to try and shape uh, what that national care service looks like and i think future generations will look back and judge us on the decisions that we're going to take in this parliament in in, in you know whether we take the opportunity to do something very different on an equal foot into the national health service or we just continue with a a, a revised structure on the same old model
2: mm-hmm. i mean is is a national care service like you've like you've mentioned like you've talked about there is that possible given that um, in Scotland down in Westminster it's probably not going to happen like this I mean the NHS was set up because it was a it was a whole UK thing so is a national service really possible in Scotland
3: yeah because it's because it's devolved um, I mean one of the privileges I had when I was a leader of the Scottish Labour Party was to go to um, Lufinnans which is a fine place to go to anyway um, a, a great part of Fife wonderful community but the reason I went there, was to look at a care village. So Fife Council, public sector, local authority, had borrowed money to invest in this campus, really, which contained a day centre for people that, um, that needed that kind of service, which provided residential care for those that needed it. And in between, provided accommodation for independent living for those people that maybe needed a kind of warden service but were relatively independent. And so it just showed what is possible, frankly, even under the current restricted system that operates. And that wasn't the only uh, uh, care village that five council, a joint SNP Labour administration, actually. Uh, that that wasn't the only example that exists in, in Fife even, let alone in other parts of the country. So I think that's, that to me was a shining example of the kind of things that we could do. You know, it's it's in public hands, it's um, uh, accountable to the local community, uh, and it's, um, I think, a kind of shining beacon of the kind of things that we could do in the future.
2: mm mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I mean, you brought up being Scottish Labour leader there. Guilty as
3: charged, yes, I did. uh,
2: I suppose I'll go down that that route now. I mean, you said at the time resigning was the right decision for the party and for you. Do you still think that's the case? Was it right for you to go?
3: Yeah, because because it had reached the point where questions over my leadership were becoming a real distraction. And uh, look, there had been, people know it's a matter of um, record, that there had been an attempt an attempted coup in the autumn the year before uh, which um, um, hadn't been successful Um, but there was a sense in which um, uh, those uh, forces of opposition to me uh, were rallying again and it just became so it looked like it wasn't going to go away we're in the countdown to uh, an extremely important election and I just felt. Uh, it would be in the best interest of the party if if I st- stood down. And it, and you know, what well, it was it wasn't a personal decision. It was a political decision. You know, I, I took a judgment about what I thought would best serve the interests of getting across a Labour case in an election to try to you know uh, win back support for the for the party I've been a member of for nearly 40 years.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean did you ever consider not standing for election after resigning or were you always keen to be an MSP again? For another...
3: Yeah I was keen to be an MSP again because I thought I, th- I thought that there was a lot of unfinished business there were lots of things that I wanted to do and, and so for example one of the things which I'm uh, currently having a look at is a members bill which um, goes back to something which I've been writing and talking and about and arguing for, for, for 20 years really since the beginning of devolution which is Um, as well as having land reform that gives communities a right to buy land so to push back the centuries-long very unfair in my view concentration of land ownership in a few hands so we should look at an Industrial Reform Act which gives uh, workers the right to buy an enterprise if it's put up for sale and on an employee-owned basis a worker-owned basis and I think That's something I'm keen to explore and advance if I can. It seems to me also fits into what's becoming increasingly recognised as an important part of uh, our approach to the economy, which is that community wealth building model, which has been pushed by. People like um, uh, Joe Cullinane, the leader of Labour in North Ayrshire f- Council, for example, and so I think that idea that we should, n- we should be less reliant on multinational capital and foreign direct investment and we should be doing more to build the economy from the bottom up and, and, and if we can do it in a way that provides for democracy in the economy by giving people say and ownership over their own uh, working lives, then, then that is absolutely the direction I think that we should go in. I mean, the, um, the, the truth is that Scotland was the home of Robert Owen, the, the great father of cooperation. Um, the Fenwick Weavers were arguably the first cooperative. Uh, and yeah, if you look at our record on cre- creating cooperatives, creating employee-owned businesses, it's, it's way, way down the European league table compared, compared to Mondragon in Spain, in the Basque country, compared to parts of Northern Italy, Emilia Romana, for example. And so I think there is a huge untapped potential for growing a mo- much more democratic economy. And and that's that's the kind of thing I want to pursue. And uh, as an MSP, I can pursue that. And, and I can work with the trade unions, as I've been doing today with the UCU. I can looking look at ways in which I can support workers who are up and against it because I think we are in for a fairly difficult time of it I think there's going to be further uh, increased pressure uh, to put the burden of the cost of the pandemic onto the shoulders of the those least uh, able to pay for it and onto working people so um, I, you know I think that that's got to be a, a an argument a, a battle that I'm in the mix of
2: mm-hmm. I mean when you were first elected you were Basically, pretty immediately put onto the onto the front benches of mm. Labour. I mean, it sounds like you're actually really relishing being on the on the back benches now.
3: Yeah, well, yes. I mean, I, there's a there's a famous speech which uh, Tony Benn gave when Harold Wilson stepped down, where um, he said that um, you know Harold, you've been a fine servant of this movement, uh, and uh, uh, my only criticism of you is that you have never been a backbencher, and now you've put that right. So. Um, I'm not quite um, comparing myself to to Harold Wilson, but I think, <laughs> but I do, yeah, it, it, I mean, it's true that many of us in 2016 uh, who were elected were propelled immediately into kind of front-line positions, and uh, for me, it was the economy, which I thought, you know, I, I really uh, relished, uh, and during that time, I developed an industrial strategy, um, which sounds very abstract, but it's about um, uh, how we can start to plan the economy more, uh, how we can start to invest in the skills that we're going to need in the future and, and becoming less reliant on market forces or less reliant on the SMP's approach to uh, industry which is to treat situations on a case-by-case basis. So they will invest in Ferguson Marine and they'll invest in BIFAB and I'm not against either of those investments but but why those and why not other? Uh, uh, enterprises uh, 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 and and where's the strategy that that lies at the root of that and that's not altogether clear. So I would like to see uh, a a much more clear and strategic approach given to the relationship between the government and the economy. I mean I have to say during the pandemic one of the things which happened was uh, uh, government ministers had a much uh, more regular and routine working relationship and dialogue with the trade unions through the STUC. And um, they spoke to business organizations on a much more regular basis. Um, I'm not quite sure that, they, that there, was, uh, there was sufficient uh, meshing of those two networks, which might have been better, but at least that happened. And, and, and so I've always argued that there, there has got to be much more involvement with trade unions and businesses Um, at the heart of that kind of economic planning process and I think that would serve working people, it would serve the economy, it would serve our wider interest better if there was just that better coordination and a bit more leadership from the Scottish Government. I mean I spoke in a debate recently about the, we were celebrating the first anniversary of the creation of the Scottish National Investment Bank. Mm. And when I was looking at it, and there's, the, you know, there's a million pound um, investment here and a two million pounds investment there, and I think there's five million pounds investment somewhere else. But, but when I looked at it at that point, 73% of all of the investment that had been committed by the Scottish National Investment Bank wasn't into an industri- industrial enterprise. 73% of it was going into an asset management company which was planning to, you know, plant trees and and invest in those kind of ecological initiatives. Now, I'm all in favour of planting trees, and I'm in favour of a balanced approach to economic uh, investment, but I really think most people's sense of what a Scottish National Investment Bank would do would be a proactive um, agitator and supporter of industry and manufacturing, and, and how, you know, how can we make sure that we get a jobs dividend from the industries of the, of the present and the future, you know whether it's renewables or whether it's some of these longer term technologies, how do we get the jobs benefit here of that? And, and so it's disappointing that even something which again, way back to when I worked at the Scottish TUC at the start of this conversation, way back when I worked at the Scottish TUC, I was writing papers for and making arguments for a Scottish investment bank. Um, and uh, it's therefore disappointing that so far it hasn't gone quite in the direction I hoped it would. Now that might change uh, but I also think that the governance of that needs to be reviewed. I think it's, you know, it's, it's run by bankers and I understand the professional expertise that they bring but I really do think there ought to be uh, the, you know, at the board level of that National Investment Bank there ought to be more business voices and there ought to be more trade union voices.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, you've spoken before um, about how you don't think the Scottish government are, are using all all the power it, it's got in in the ways that it could be used. Um, just thinking about your your leadership of Labour, one of the the big obstacles you faced was the fact that Labour is kind of stuck in this position because of the constitutional debate. You know, you've got the SNP on one side pushing for independence, the Conservatives on the other side really against it, and Labour's kind of Fallen in the middle. In many ways, you face the same problems as Kezia did before you, that Anas faces now. I mean, is there room for Scottish Labour? Can you ever see them making a comeback whilst the Constitution's so dominant?
3: Yeah, well, I, I, I do actually. And I think th- what, um, what opened up, and, and perhaps we didn't exploit it sufficiently or get the message across well enough. But what opened up in the last couple of years was a a growing division between uh, the SNP and the Tories, neither of whom are all that, um, well, the SNP want to end the era of devolution. And you had Boris Johnson telling a meeting of his MPs that he thought that uh, Tony Blair's biggest mistake was devolution. Now, I might have a view about what Tony Blair's biggest mistake was, and, and it certainly wasn't devolution because um um I you know people voted overwhelmingly in a referendum um, um for devolution. I think that there is um a great deal of support for us uh, having uh, powers here and maybe more powers here, but remaining inside the u k uh, and I think you know and you know i've been a long a long time supporter of a more federal approach. I think having come out of the European union there it seems to me there seems to me to be a compelling case for having a more formalized council of ministers uh, with representatives from Wales Northern Ireland Scotland and and the UK sitting around a table trying to coordinate policy and approaches so i think i, I think that there is space for the labor party as an avowedly pro devolution party mm-hmm. and and as i say i think you know the conservatives blow hot and cold uh, but it's clear that there is, a, there is a strand of opinion which still exists at the very top, I mean Boris Johnson had previously, previously said um, uh, government by a scot was inconceivable after devolution so there's that whole and, and I think the actions he's taken as Prime Minister uh, demonstrate as well his either misunderstanding of or or comprehensive understanding of and therefore denial of devolution and the role of the devolved parliaments mm-hmm. so I think I think that does create a space for the Labour Party and I think that's why you know, we need to be talking um, and, and we try to and it's difficult to break through but we need to be talking about the case for devolution which is not some kind of uh, hardline unionism which is represented by the Conservative Party but, and, and of course neither is it is a, a nationalism that's represented by the SNP so it, there is I think ground there that we can occupy, that we can use to enunciate the Labour case for where we sit in the constitutional debate.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, in a recent interview with Holyrood uh, magazine, your former roommate and, and former First Minister We never shed
3: a room, we shed a house.
2: <laughs> talked about being sort of stuck in treacle and not really knowing how to get out of that because of the constitutional debate. Do you agree with that assessment?
3: It's difficult. I mean, the, I mean the, so the great cry um, internally in the Labour Party o- over Brexit and over um, where we stand on a referendum and all the rest of it is, get off the fence. Uh, to which my reply was always, well, which side of the fence would you like me to get off on, you know? Because um, these things are these things are very difficult and and in a period where there is that kind of polarization of, of opinion, it is quite hard to break through. The, I mean, the other fact of the matter is that as a party in third place, um, which it you know, was when I inherited the leadership and still is, sadly. Um, it's more difficult to get as much time in the parliament because it's all proportional. Uh, it's much more difficult to get cut through in the media because we're not seen as the main opposition party. Um, and so it, all of those um, obstacles have to be overcome. I think they are uh, eminently uh, beatable but I think it's it's not easy and it, and that just and that makes the challenge that makes the challenge hard so so whether we're in treacle or not you know I think that's a, it's a reasonable um, assessment of how difficult things can be but I think the the, the future I think has, has got to come from a kind of a, a, an authentic belief that things could be so much better and that the powers that exist in the Scottish Parliament which haven't been used, whether it's over industrial policy, whether it's over housing, whether there are the reforms of the of, of the provision of care, all of these things could be tackled, and there's been an unwillingness to properly get on and tackle them. And I think, and so my reading of that interview um, was that uh, what Jack was saying was there are all these things, the scandal of drugs deaths and so on. There are all these things that should have been addressed and could have been addressed. Uh, by a devolved government, and haven't been. And I think that's you know, uh, and and that's why um, uh, many people are sad that this opportunity has been missed. And and you know, it's, it doesn't matter whether politicians are sad or not. It, it's those people who are at the at the sharp end of all that, who whose lives um, have not been changed in the way that they could have been. You know, I mean, so I speak to people who come and see me at surgeries and so on, or get in touch with me because they're living in overcrowded accommodation. And you think, you know, how on earth can you expect the educational attainment gap to close when kids uh, at any time are living in overcrowded accommodation, but when they've been through a period where they're not at school and are expected to home learn, what chance have they got? And one of the things which um, is increasingly being brought up with me is uh, Parents uh, in some despair, saying that because of the interruption to their kids' education, uh, children who were keen on school and were getting on well have returned to school and have just fallen off the pace and uh, and a bit more and a bit disaffected. um, And they won't get that time back. They'll never never be 14 again. They'll never be 12 again. They'll never be 16 again. So, so we need to get these things right. And these are the pressing issues that need to be addressed uh, and could be addressed by the Scottish parliament and by the Scottish government. And it's, and it's to those things I think we need to look to what's going on in the, in the National Health Service. Of course, because of the uh, period that we have gone through with the pandemic, the strain on the National Health Service is immense. The strain on the National Health Service staff is, is indescribable. So we need to be there to invest in them and to give them support. And that's not just about giving them a free cup of tea. It's about looking holistically at what support they, can, they, they need. How do we increase staffing levels in the NHS? How do we stop people leaving the employment of the NHS? Because that's what's happening. And one of the reasons for there being big queues of ambulances outside A&E is because of a sh- shortage of staff, but also uh, a shortage of beds, and so decisions have been taken. So, w- w- which is why I think the reward and the valuation of uh, nurses, of care staff, and, and so on, is so important because that's the way you will start to mend some of these systematic challenges that we face.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, you speak a bit about education there, and of course that kind of links a little bit to your own background. You know, you got a scholarship to a fee-paying school. You've spoken before about how that gave you a bit of a step up to some of your sort of more primary school classmates that ended up in trades rather than going to university. Do you you feel like enough has changed since you were a kid?
3: Not really. I mean, I think um, there is is still... um, a lot of division in society, and I think there are still uh, kids that have been left behind. I mean, the, so the position in Scotland is one in four children are living in poverty, and two out of those children are living in households where at least one adult is in work. So we've got this uh, endemic problem of low pay and in the private sector as well as the public sector so until we start to resolve some of those things we're never going to see uh, the kind of change and the equal opportunity society that people are looking for so for me it's about equality it's about equality of income uh, and 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 less less of a wealth gap and less of an income gap Uh, but it's also about where the power lies as well and i think you know it's why i'm so interested in Um, uh, standing up to power and challenging power, uh, but also trying to give voice to the voiceless. I mean, and so just last week, I was out um, on a stall in a retail park trying to drum up uh, support for a campaign that local people themselves are running to prevent a massive uh, development on Greenbelt land just uh, between Adrian Cote Bridge. And I think... They, they describe themselves as being in a David versus Goliath battle, and they are, um, because against organised money, the only thing that a community has got is organised people. What can we do to organise a, a protest, resistance uh, against that? And uh, I see it as my job to support them, to, to try and give them encouragement, but also to say, um, uh, to remind them that uh, David defeated Goliath and that we can win these battles. And in, in the case of that group um, from those villages south of Airdrie and Coat Bridge, there, is, um, th- there has been a renewed interest in, well, who owns that land where uh, there's a chance of this massive development going ahead, uh, which is on Greenbelt, which is against the, the, both the national as well as the local develop, development plans. And they are, they've, they've had awakened in them an understanding that ownership matters and so that there is one of the things that I would like to see is a community ownership of that land, and, and that that would stop <laughs> that would stop in its tracks once and for all. this idea that that 200 acres of greenbelt can be just concreted over by a developer. So I see my role as being to try to uh, support people in what is often a very uneven balance of power, and uh, that manifests itself. On issues like that, planning it manifests itself in the workplace. Uh, it manifests itself in the way our economy is run, and in whose interests it's run. Um, and I think, and it, and and that then spills over into how we provide care for people. You know, should it pr- be provided locally and democratically versus provided by multinational corporations based in tax havens? So I think these are choices. And I think there is a different path that we can take. And, and I'm keen to put forward the case for that different path to be taken.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, your newest role is, is a convener of the Public Audit Committee, and that kind of all feeds into that. So for listeners that might, be, might hear public audit and think, oh, that sounds really dry, can you explain a little bit about what actually the Public Audit Committee does?
3: Yes. Well, the Public Audit Committee um, uh, really uh, tracks... Uh, how public money is raised and spent and uh, where it goes wrong uh, get to the bottom of why it's gone wrong and what we can learn from it. So uh, we're expecting um, a report from Audit Scotland on the ferries in the new year, the whole debacle about the ferry procurement arrangements. Um, But we are also uh, looking at what's happened with Um, the vaccination programme which has gone relatively well Um, but we monitor where things have gone wrong and we've got got, um, a series of public bodies that are coming before us over the course of the next few weeks where things haven't gone as well as they could Um, and so it's to try to um, uh, not just act over uh, public value for money but public interest I mean so here's one of my favourite poets is Tom Leonard and he wrote a, a, poet, a poem which is so short I can remember it, I hope. <laughs> and it was entitled The Underfunders' Utopia. And he said, The state hospital with one bed, always full, always efficient. So it's not just about are we getting value for money, it's about what are the outcomes, mm-hmm. how effective are things, you know, are, are we getting the changes that people are intending there to be. I mean, we had somebody from the Scottish Government in a couple of weeks ago before the committee, because um, despite government-stated policy in favour of community justice solutions rather than custodial solutions, because we know that the the re-offending rate is much lower amongst people that go through the community justice system rather than those that are sent back to prison or are sent to prison for the first time. So and it's a lot cheaper as well. But yet, when we've examined the figures, it's clear that there's been no change at all. And, 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 you know, and over the last couple of years, one year it got worse, and two years it's got marginally better. So if you've got a stated policy, why isn't it being implemented? I mean, the Auditor General, Stephen Boyle, talks about the implementation gap. So you have stated government policy and rhetoric in the parliament and strategy documents setting out what the aim and objective is, and then you've got what's going on out there in the real world. And and, and and all too often, they don't marry up very well. There's too big a discrepancy. There's an implementation gap. And so our job is to identify where there are those gaps and probe into why that is and, and what needs to change. And is it about bad leadership? Is it about bad governance structures? as well as, you know, is there a a cultural problem? Is there a lack of workforce planning? Um, Or are there other problems? I mean, we're looking at the public sector and the public pound and so on. But I do need to um, uh, recall that when you look at the big, some of the biggest failures in recent years have been ICT projects. So the police system, NHS 24, the Scottish Public Pensions Agency and so on. But in each case, uh, those contracts uh, uh, were met by you know cap gemini capita and accenture and all so these these are big private sector companies that are party to uh, you know frankly a, a bad use of public money that hasn't delivered on what it was expected to do so i think that there is a you know there is without question um a, a role for the public audit committee to look at public money, but I think it's also to look at what the arrangements are and whether things, uh, and if things don't work, why they don't work, and and where things work well, to promote that as well.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, throughout the pandemic, we have seen a bit a bit more of a focus on on how contracts are are awarded, um, and and uh, also obviously there's been the recent um, stuff down south on on MPs uh, lobbying and being political consultants you're in favour of banning second jobs for MPs why why is that so important to you
3: well because I think uh, you should be solely focused on representing your constituents I think I think there's enough to do as a member of uh, the Scottish Parliament uh, without um, without um, demoting that work uh, in favour of some kind of commercial opportunity and so I do think um, you know I, I do think it's and, and so there you had um, Ruth Davidson, of course, uh, when she stepped down from the leadership of the Scottish Conservative Party, uh, announced that she was taking on a paid lobbyist role, and I think you know public clamour was sufficiently strong that she decided that that wasn't the right path to go down. So I think, so I think th- th- there is an example where where we can see where public uh, and other pressure is on that question, and I think especially where. There have been instances uh, of uh, contracts being awarded when there has been a blurring of the edges about the role in the award of those contracts uh, of MPs of the same party of, 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 as the government. So, I, I mean, it just there's a murkiness to all that, and I think the best way to clean it up is to be absolutely clear that there should be no second jobs. That if you know, if he, and and you go into An election, knowing that they they are the rules, and so you can choose whether or not that's something you're prepared to abide by or not. But I think most people, looking at the salary of an MSP, would say it's a decent, uh, very good uh, standard of living that you can uh, that you can eke out uh, on that salary. Why would you need uh, other streams of income? To me, I just don't see that there is a there is any real uh, cause for that. You know, of course there are people that for registration and uh, professional reasons need to retain their uh, nursing uh, qualifications and and so on, or legally perhaps, but I think that that these are exceptions. The rule should be, the default position should be that you have one job and that job is as a member of the Scottish Parliament.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, Last question, just to round it off, um, is uh, about the Miners' Pardon Bill, which I know that you're very interested in. It obviously links a little bit to to your Yorkshire history. It's also very uh, important across the Central Belt in Scotland. I mean, tell me why communities have been clamouring for that and and why that piece of legislation is so important. Right.
3: Well, you say Yorkshire, I mean, so there's a campaign as well to get truth and justice for all grieve. And, uh, which is in Yorkshire, and that's not being achieved yet. So, at least in Scotland, because of work by people like Neil Findlay, the National Union of Mine Workers and so on, uh, the government have now published a bill, uh, the Miners' Pardon Bill, and and I think I just think it's important. It, it's to it's to pardon those people who, uh, as striking miners, were caught up in a battle for their industry, for their jobs, but also for their communities, and. Um, For anybody who lived through those times, uh, they will know just how highly charged it was, how much do or die it was. And so uh, people were uh, arrested and convicted for things like obstructing the police on a picket line. Well, um, in in many cases, it was the police obstructing the pickets uh, or for breach of the peace or uh, for a breach of a bail condition. And um, the intention of this legislation is to uh, recognise that in the heat of the battle of that strike uh, it's understandable uh, why some of those things happened and, mean, you, and that there needs to be a part of picket lines, well, you,
2: some of them Yeah,
3: yeah well yeah I mean I, mm-hmm. I did go to Bilson Glen a couple of times but I think the, the, the and, and we worked closely with, because I was in Stirling with the, the, the miners at Paul Mays which, which actually went out on strike before the big national strike began. So those links uh, and those bonds were extremely important. And, and of course, a lot of those people, the delegate from Paul Mays, um, just passed away quite recently. So there is a, a, a lot of those people that were caught up in that will have posthumous um, pardons, which is, um, which is extremely sad in many ways but at least um, action is taken now. I mean, I do. Th- there will be, I think, a, a, an exploration of whether the definitions in the legislation as proposed are correct, whether it's, it takes into account I- enough situations where people were caught up, um, uh, because it kind of precludes any community incident where there was a breach of the peace or breach of bail or any interaction with the police. I think um, there is also uh, a question which arises for me, which is about whether in, in addition to a pardon, whether there should be any kind of compensation scheme for people and I think that's something that I hope that in Parliament we can explore and, uh, and certainly I would like to see um, uh, some kind of recognition that um, there needs to be an apology, um, a pardon uh, and maybe some financial recompense as well.